Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting on the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD library and pull out a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by our brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting on the Mind of Christ. The talk for our program this week never really made it into the archive. It was recorded just before this program was first aired. A number of groups around the country hold pro-life events shortly before the March for Life in Washington, D.C. Christ the King Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan was one of them. I was there and recorded Faith and Conscious Matter, putting them together in 2012. There were three main talks at the conference and an extended question-and-answer period. The speakers were Dr. Monica Miller, President of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society and a Professor of Theology at Madonna University, Dr. Robert Fastigi, Professor of Systematic Theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, and Registered Nurse and Pro-Life Activist Jill Stanek. In honor of the March for Life, the stalwarts who will be marching there and the 55 million babies who've lost their lives to the horror of abortion, I'll play Jill Stanek's talk from this ecumenical day-long conference on our program today. You may not know Jill Stanek's name, but multiple thousands of other people on both sides of the abortion issue do. She's a human dynamo. She's given sworn testimony before congressional committees nine times. She was invited to the White House to see President Bush sign the Born Alive In For Protection Act because of her pro-life work. She's even left Bill O'Reilly speechless when she described an abortion. Following her talk, we'll listen in on some of the question and answer period that followed the main talks of the conference. Stay with us. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. On Saturday, January 12, 2012, the Christ the King Pro-Life Action Committee sponsored their first conference. The day-long ecumenical event was titled Faith and Conscience Matter, putting them together in 2012. It was an outreach event. There were a number of parish members in attendance, but most of those attending were from other churches, Catholic and non-Catholic. A number were sporting great hairs. Some of them had babies with them. Almost half were under 20. I could see many of them from my recording position. Most of the young adults were not there with their parents. They were there with small groups of like-minded friends. It was great to see 
and they stayed to the end. The first speaker was registered Nurse Jill Stanick. She's a mother and grandmother and a member of Parkview Christian Church in Orland Park, Illinois. She became a nurse because she witnessed a traffic accident in which her baby died. For a number of years, she worked as a labor and delivery nurse at Christ Hospital in Oak Park, Illinois. She discovered that this Christian hospital performed abortions. That's where her story really starts. The conference itself started with Mass in the church. After the break and the move across the parking lot to the parish center, Pastor Mark Frazone of Knox Presbyterian Church opened the conference in prayer. Good morning. Let's uh, pray together. God's Word says, it said uh, we just sang, uh, send forth your word. And um, Jesus, when he was comforting Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus, said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and give you praise for this day. We thank you that we gather as your church. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And so we praise you, Lord, that you bring us together as brothers and sisters in you, Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray this day that you would give us open hearts and minds to the teaching that we will hear. Lord, we pray for each and every presenter. We pray that you would give them wisdom even beyond what they have prepared. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our lives to change us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to come away from the culture of death that our culture has embraced and that we would more and more be steeped in your word and know you, Lord Jesus, because you give us the culture of life, of resurrection life. Lord, we pray this day even for those women who are thinking of abortion right now. We lift them up to you. We ask, Lord, that you would change their hearts, turn them away from this abyss, and that you would bring life to their wounds. Lord, we pray, too, for our country, for our nation, for our president. We pray that you would turn the hearts of our president and all of the legislators and the judges that they too would embrace a culture of life. Lord, we need you, Lord Jesus. We need you to change hearts and minds. For you, Lord, love life. And it's in your precious name that we pray all of these things, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said together, Amen. Here with the first talk of the conference is Joe Stanley. Thanks, Taco. Thanks for inviting me again. Thank you. When I was a young mom, barely out of my teens, I was the first person to happen on an accident in my home state of Indiana. This was about 30 years ago, and we didn't use car seats or seat belts very much. So I was driving on Highway 41, and a car next to me, the dad was driving, and the mom was holding their little baby girl. And the car stalled out at the bottom of a hill. And a semi-truck came up behind the car and didn't have time to stop before it smashed into the back end of the car. And when it did that, the little baby girl was thrown out of her mother's arms into the windshield. And I was the first person to arrive on the scene. And so I saw the dad sitting in shock next to the car holding his dying baby girl. And there was nothing that I could do to save her. And she did go on and pass away. 
And those feelings of helplessness, of not knowing what to do in a medical emergency, really stuck with me and became one of the reasons I went and I got my nursing degree. When I graduated in 1993, I applied at only one hospital, Christ Hospital on the southwest side of Chicago. I thought I would be safe from such moral and ethical dilemmas like abortion because who would think that a hospital named Christ could possibly be involved in such a thing? But I came to work one night in my capacity as a labor and delivery nurse, and I received two terrible blows. The first was finding out that the hospital was involved in late-term abortions. I heard in report that we were aborting a second trimester baby that night with Down syndrome. And the second was finding out that the method of abortion that the hospital used, called induced labor abortion, sometimes resulted in babies being aborted alive, And if they were aborted alive, they were allowed to die without any medical intervention whatsoever. What I thought I'd do now is let Mr. Bill O'Reilly help me tell you the next part of my story. For those of you who haven't heard of Bill O'Reilly, he is a commentator on Fox Cable News. And for those who know who he is, you know that he's very outspoken. But he interviewed me in September of 2001. And you're going to see during this video clip that there were a couple of times during the interview that he was rendered speechless, which is really rare for him. And this interview got so much feedback that it was replayed as one of his five highlights of the year that year. So let's go ahead and roll that. In the personal story segment tonight, Nurse Jill Stanek testified in front of the House of Representatives before that body passed the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Ms. Stanek works at the Christ Hospital in Oak Lawn, Illinois, where according to her, some babies have been birthed and then were allowed to die. Ms. Stanek joins us now from Chicago. She says, you know, before I, most Americans don't even know this story because the mainstream media isn't covering it. I think we're the only ones on television covering it. And as you know, the uh, the ban on uh, on this passed overwhelmingly in the House of Representatives, the Infant Life Protection Act. But I was stunned to hear that there are babies being allowed to starve to death. Is that what's going on? They probably don't live long enough to starve to death, but they are being aborted um, oftentimes alive and allowed to die, yes. When you say oftentimes, talk about your personal knowledge of this. You work in a hospital called Christ Hospital. Is that a religious hospital? Yes, it's associated with the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and United Church of Christ. And And they allow abortions. I was very shocked to find out after this all started that they are pro-choice denominations. All right, so they allow abortions to take place. And sometimes the abortions are not completed inside the mother's womb? That is never the intent. Um, The type of abortion that Christ Hospital performs and others is called induced labor abortion or now known as live birth abortion. And the technique is done so that the baby will die during the birth process or soon after, but not necessarily in utero. And up until what time does this procedure take place as far as the trimester is concerned? It usually happens during the second trimester, but I know that Christ Hospital has aborted into the third trimester. And when it doesn't work, the baby is born then. And that's the Infant Protection Act we're talking about, correct? Right. What happens is... um, the doctor or the resident inserts a pill into the birth canal up to the cervix, which is the opening at the bottom of the uterus that causes this opening to um, open prematurely. And so the second or third trimester baby that is still very small, in essence, just falls out of the uterus once the cervix opens far enough. And that's how it comes to be that sometimes these babies are born alive. 
And then what happens after they're born alive? If they're born alive, the hospital only mandates that they get what's called comfort care, which is um, wrapping the baby in a blanket, offering the baby to the parents to hold. And if the parents don't want to hold the baby, then it is left to nursing staff to hold the baby or put the baby somewhere until the baby passes away. And that's where I became personally involved when a co-worker of mine was taking one of these babies who was a Downs baby who was aborted between 21 and 22 weeks alive to the soil utility room when she told me what she was doing and I stepped in and said that I couldn't let this baby die alone and I held him for the 45 minutes that it took for him to die. I don't know, I really don't know what to say. How often does this happen? Um, I have, I know the stats at Christ Hospital, and from 95 on, they've aborted between 11 and 26 times a year. In this procedure? Right. When the baby's been born alive? Right. About half the, I, I'm kind of aware of about um, nine or ten abortions this year, and about half the babies have lived, and each of those babies has lived between an hour and a half and three hours just this year alone. Uh, I know that they, one baby in particular has lived almost as long as an eight-hour shift. So basically uh, the doctors and nurses just don't feed the baby and just... Well, they don't really live long enough to be fed or... Um, well, if the baby's eight hours, what does the baby die from? The baby dies because it suffocates, that um, it is not meant to breathe this early on. Its lungs aren't mature, so it um, is like a fish out of water. Your uh, compatriots in the hospital, uh, they're all aware of this, right? Right. It's not something that the hospital ever advertised. And as a matter of fact, um, I worked in the department for a year before I ever even knew that this went on and stumbled on it quite by accident one night when I came in to report and heard in report that we were aborting a Down syndrome baby, a different one, between 21 and 22 weeks. Otherwise, um, I was never told in my interview or during my 12-week orientation it just so happens that if you happen to be there when one is going on, sometimes that's how you find out about right. it. But the doctors and the hospital personnel certainly have to know. What right. do you think about the 15 people who voted to allow this to continue in Congress? I think that um, probably their elections are in danger. Um, we've got one here in Illinois, Jesse yeah. Jackson Jr. I just don't understand how anybody can I don't be... either, Ms. Stack. Right. We're going to name those people when we come back, and we thank you very much. You're welcome. Christ Hospital said that it compassionately aborted babies with very serious mental or physical handicaps, but Christ Hospital would also abort for life or health of the mother. And we in the pro-life movement know that abortion for health of the mother is basically code for abortion on demand. And so several of the babies I'm aware of who were aborted at Christ were completely healthy babies. Now, in the state of Illinois, babies who are aborted alive have to receive both birth and death certificates. And ironically, the cause of death that is most usually listed on these particular babies is extreme prematurity, which is a doctor's admission that if they would have just left the baby alone, the baby would not have had to die of extreme prematurity. To a person who believes that every life is sacred, this practice of eugenic abortions was abominable, but it was magnified in my world because the very place that these particular abortions were taking place was at a hospital named after my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I told Mr. O'Reilly, one night a nursing co-worker was taking a little baby who'd been aborted alive and 
survived to the soiled utility room to die because his parents didn't want to hold him and she didn't have time to hold him that night. And when she told me what she was doing, I couldn't bear the thought of this suffering child dying alone and so I cradled and rocked him for the 45 minutes that he lived. He was between 21 and 22 weeks old and he had Down syndrome. He wouldn't have survived even if they tried to resuscitate him because his lungs just weren't mature enough. He was about the size of my hand. And he didn't move very much because he was using all of his energy, you know, struggling to try and breathe. And I remember toward the end of his life, I couldn't tell if he was alive or not unless I held him up against the light to see if I could see his heart beating through his chest wall. And the feelings of helplessness that I'd had so many years before of watching another little baby die came flooding back to me as once again I was in the same situation. There was nothing that I could do to help this little baby. And after he's pronounced dead, I folded his little arms across his chest. I tied them together with a little string. I wrapped him in a shroud. And I took him to the morgue where we took all of our other dead patients. After I held that baby, the weight of everything that I knew became just impossible to bear, and I knew I had to make a decision. I had two choices. One was to leave the hospital, and one was to stay and fight. And while I was reading scripture and praying and seeking counsel from my pastor, and thank God for godly pastors, and it's very reassuring to see so many here today, I came up on a passage that I thought spoke directly to me, it's Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, and it says, Rescue those who have unjustly been sentenced to death. Don't stand back and let them die. Don't try to disclaim responsibility by saying that you didn't know about it. For the Lord who knows all hearts knows you knew. And he will reward everyone according to his deeds. And so I thought those were my marching orders. I was called to stay and fight. So I wrote a letter to the religious leaders of the hospital because I couldn't believe that they knew what was going on in the labor and delivery department just a couple of floors over their heads. But they knew, and as a result of my letter, I was called in for a meeting with my department superiors. And they told me that they thought induced labor abortion was the most compassionate way to abort because this method of abortion allowed parents to have closure on the death of their baby because they got to see their baby die, grieve properly. And they said this was the most compassionate way to abort the baby because this method allowed parents to hold the baby until the baby died rather than the baby being suctioned or dismembered as with other methods of abortion. And my bosses said it would be a shame to lose me, but I might be better suited at another hospital that was more in line with my pro-life convictions. But I told them I wasn't going to leave. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do next, but I knew that I hadn't done enough to try and stop what was going on there. So next, my pastor and I alerted a couple of influential organizations and people and asked them to privately appeal to the hospital. You know, we didn't want to go public if we didn't have to. Um, people such as Cardinal Francis George of Chicago wrote a letter to the hospital. Dr. C. Everett Koop, who was a former Surgeon General of the United States. I see some heads nodding. They know him. He was a Surgeon General under President Reagan. He wrote to the hospital. But appeals such as this had no impact. The hospital said it wasn't going to stop. And so, as he told them he was going to do if they didn't stop, 
My pastor wrote a letter in July of 1999 to 70 Chicago area pro-life organizations and churches letting them know what Christ Hospital was up to. And it was my pastor's letter that triggered the public outcry that immediately followed. Uh, People didn't know, the public didn't know about this method of abortion before this point. And also to find out that it was being committed at a hospital named Christ was particularly inflammatory to Christians. So word spread far and wide across the country. And before I knew it, uh, the story was in you know the New York Times and Newsweek, and I was getting called to be interviewed by people I didn't, I didn't even I'd never even heard of, like Bill O'Reilly, and you know on radio from one end of the country to the other. And it turned out that induced labor abortion was not at all rare. In fact, it's still not. It's 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 the most common late-term abortion procedure now. The latest CDC stats say that um, of 25 states reporting that um, at least six, 7,000 abortions this year, uh, every year by this method of abortion. Well, according to God's perfect timing of events, a bill that had been in the works for a decade came to fruition right when this was all going on in April of 2000. Someone saw the day coming when abortion would leave the uterus and we would be talking about, as Father Pavone of Priest for Life calls them, fourth trimester abortions or, you know, infanticide. And they introduced the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. This is a simple three-sentence bill. How many have heard of the Born Alive Act? A lot of very knowledgeable people here today. That's good. Well, the Born Alive Act is just three sentences long. It says basically any baby who's born alive, no matter what gestational age, no matter what reason for being born, wanted or not, is a constitutionally protected person. This is how far abortion has brought us in the United States today, that we are now arguing on the merits of letting babies who have survived the first attempt to kill him or her die or be killed after that baby is born. I've been asked to testify nine times now on the federal level and in various states, including the state of Michigan, which has very strong state pro-life Uh, born alive legislation about babies who I knew were aborted alive at Christ Hospital and allowed to die. And I have had legislators argue with me to my face that they think that these babies should be allowed to die or be killed. In fact, my own state senator, Barack Obama, in 2001, 2002, and 2003 argued with me in committees when this legislation was introduced in the state of Illinois, saying that To give a preterm born baby now, we're talking about, we're not talking about babies who haven't been born yet, but a born baby, the same legal rights as a full-term born baby, he said would lead to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And he ended up voting against that bill four times, and he was the only state senator to speak out against that bill on the state senate floor. He took a lead in defeating that bill. It didn't pass until he went on to the U.S. Senate. All the incidences that I described to the legislators and I'm going to be describing to you today, I have given under oath, and Christ Hospital has never publicly denied that what I'm saying isn't true because it can't. I told the legislators about what a support associate relayed to me of accidentally throwing one of these live-aborted babies into the trash. She didn't realize that the baby was wrapped in a disposable towel next to the sink in the soiled utility room and accidentally threw the baby away. And when she was going through the trash attempting to retrieve the baby, she accidentally dropped the baby on the floor. 
told the legislators about what a nurse co-worker relayed to me of being involved in an abortion of a baby who was supposed to have spina bifida, but who was born with a completely intact spine. And what happened was there was an incomplete twin in the placenta. And on these old grainy ultrasounds, this incomplete twin looked like a mass on his brother's back. But there was actually nothing wrong with this other little guy. He was completely fine. And the mom and the dad who were aborting him were both doctors. And my friend said that the dad came into the soiled utility room after what he thought was the abortion of his handicapped son and saw that he had just given permission to abort his completely healthy baby. And she said he didn't say a word. He turned and he left the room silently. And I find this incident particularly poignant because it points out that abortion just doesn't kill children. And abortion just doesn't maim and kill our girls and our women. But abortion has a profound impact on men too, in a different way, a silent way. I'm sure that this guy did not go back to his wife's room and tell her what he knew and increase her guilt and her shame and her pain even more. I'm sure that this is something that he lives with by himself to this very day, as so many men do. And that's why I was grateful to hear Shasha talk about people having the ability to have prayer during lunch because I'm sure that there are some men in this room today who have been impacted by abortion who can look back when they were young and they you know made stupid decisions and said stupid things to a girlfriend abandoned a girlfriend and they need to seek healing and forgiveness too and move on past it I told the legislators about a situation that a nurse co-worker relate to me she said Jill I can't stop thinking about it She was involved in the abortion of a baby who was just over 23 weeks old or just over the line of viability. The neonatal resuscitation guidelines say that a baby is potentially resuscitatable at about 23 weeks and or weighing about a pound. You know, you hear babies being saved a little bit younger than that, weighing less than that. Christ Hospital has saved a baby that weighed 12 ounces, you know, the size of a pop can, but that's the standard. And this baby was right about there healthy. The mom wasn't going to be able to complete the pregnancy to term though. And so because she was at a hospital that offered choices, doctors said to her, do you want to try and hold on, you know, as long as you can, a few more days and deliver a baby. Outcome doesn't look good, but you want to try or do you want to just go ahead and get it over with and abort? She said, well, I want to abort. Now she'd wanted everything done for her baby The baby, a team of four specialists would have been sent over from the neonatal unit when this little girl was born to care for her. But because this little girl wasn't wanted when she was born and she was born alive, the only people present at her delivery was my nurse friend and an OBGYN resident. And this little girl was aborted alive. And more than that, she began showing signs of thriving all by herself without any help. Her APGAR scores improved between one and five minutes. These are scores that nurses give to show the well-being of a baby. And this baby, five minutes old, was doing better on her own than when she was one minute old. But because she was wanted, she was just kept in the department and rocked for the two and a half hours that she lived. And the reason that my friend couldn't stop thinking about it is because she was pregnant too, right around 23 weeks. Her baby was right about the same age as a baby that she just helped abort. I had a co-worker, Allison Baker, testify with me in Washington, and Allison told Congress people about one time walking into the soiled utility room to find a live aborted baby laying naked next to the sink and wants to find a live aborted baby laying naked on the scale in the soiled utility room. 
And she said that she herself one time inherited a patient at change of shift who had just aborted her baby alive and didn't want anything to do with her baby. And so the baby was relegated to the soiled utility room. And Allison said she still had two patients now, mind you. She said every time she would go into the mom's room, the mom would say to her, is he dead yet? Is he dead yet? Well, in the midst of all the congressional testimony that I was giving by this time and prayer vigils at the hospital and pickets, I continued to work there for another two years after I went public. I didn't like staying, but every time I thought about leaving, Isaiah 8.18 kept coming back to me, and it says, I will wait with hope for the Lord. I am here with the children that the Lord has given me. One of the children that the Lord gave me came on August 12, 2000. Got a call from my son that night, and my daughter-in-law had just delivered our 25-week-old grandson. And, you know, we were just so worried and shocked and ran to the hospital. And the first thing I noticed about Gabriel when we got to the neonatal unit, but he was so young that his eyes were still fused shut. I was taken immediately back to a time in the neonatal unit when a neonatologist was trying to tell me, Jill, sometimes we save babies that we just shouldn't save. They're too young. Look at this. And he turned one baby's head up toward me in one of the isolates, and he said, see, this baby was too young to be saved. His eyes were still few shut. And I was thankful that my grandson Gabriel was born in a hospital that believed in life and hope and helped resuscitate him. And he's now an 11-year-old, my oldest grandson, and just the light of our lives. I don't believe that there's any such thing as coincidence. If the Bible says that not a sparrow falls from the sky without his knowing it, and that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, then we are all at this moment in time for a reason. We are all in this geographical location for a reason, your sphere of influence for a reason. We may not understand sometimes the reason for the troubles that we go through, but God never promised us that we would have a pain-free, happy-go-lucky life. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. So it's a guarantee. But in the midst of our trouble, we have to believe that God intends good to come out of whatever that we're involved in. So because it was my duty, I thought, to stay and be a witness inside the hospital, I thought God wouldn't have put me here if he didn't think I couldn't handle this. I watched and I listened very carefully for those two years that went by before I was eventually fired, and I heard many heartbreaking incidences. One nurse friend told me about an aborting patient that she had who didn't realize that her baby could be aborted alive, and so not only was hysterical when he came out alive, but also because he didn't appear to have the external defects that she'd been told he was going to have, which was why she was aborting him. So she screamed for someone to help her baby, and my friend ran over to the unit, grabbed the neonatologist, and he came rushing back, and he quickly assessed the baby. And he had to look the mom in the eye and say, there's nothing I can do for your son because he was born too soon. And the mom was so traumatized, she had to be tranquilized. And it was left up to this little guy's grandmother to rock him for the hour and a half that he lived, the only time she would ever hold him. I've been further shocked at the depths that some people will go to to protect and defend abortion, people who call themselves Christians. In December of 2000, Christ Hospital unveiled its comfort room. So no longer could I go around the country saying, you know, they're tossing babies to die in the soiled utility room. They now were going to the comfort room. This was a small, nicely decorated room, complete with a first photo machine in case parents wanted professional pictures taken of their aborted babies. 
baptismal supplies in case they wanted their aborted babies baptized, and a foot printer and baby bracelets in case they wanted keepsakes of their aborted babies. You may not think that what I'm telling you could possibly be true, but I took pictures of that comfort room, and I had them entered in the congressional testimony, and taking those pictures is one of the ways I got myself fired not too long after that. You can Google them, Christ Hospital Comfort Room, and they'll pop up. And Father Pavone uh, made a flyer of my experience, and in the flyer he put pictures of the comfort room. And you're welcome to come and take one of these flyers after I'm done speaking today. Christ Hospital wanted me to quit long before it fired me because it wanted me to stop talking and it wanted me to stop having things to talk about. But like I said, I wouldn't leave. During those two years that went by, I was put on a one-year-long final warning twice. So I was on final warning the whole time. I had my picture cut up. I received anonymous hate mail. One time the hospital CEO publicly posted a letter about me in the department for several months with my name highlighted and circled. But God reminds us that one plus him equals the majority. And I also know that I'm on the winning side. The healthcare system that I work for, Advocate Healthcare, Advocate is one of the ten largest healthcare systems in the United States. But like I said, I happen to know that one, 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 one plus God equals the majority. And I happen to know that I have nothing on earth to fear. In fact, God says in Isaiah, I, the Lord, have called you to do what is right. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Don't be intimidated. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. But I do have to admit that life at work became more and more difficult, you know, as time went on, as you might imagine. I began to feel like I was leading the life of a double agent, flying off to Washington, D.C. one minute to testify, and the next minute being so close to abortion that I almost couldn't stand it. That final night, as I walked through the main doors of the hospital to work, I worked midnights, and underneath a mission statement that's still there, that says in part, all human beings are created in the image of God, So the hospital knew exactly who it was aborting and had no excuses whatsoever. I became sick to my stomach and I said, God, how long are you going to make me do this? Well, it turned out not that much longer, Jill. (laughs) This is August 31st, 2001. And when I went in to punch in at the time clock, there was my boss waiting for me, which is an ominous sign if your boss is waiting for you at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. And sure enough, I was terminated and I was escorted out of the hospital with security guards. It was all very exciting. And my termination even made the New York Times, page two, you know, just what I want to be famous for, getting fired. Christ Hospital gave me four written reasons for being fired, and they all had to do with my speaking out against abortion and taking pictures of the comfort room. On my own time, I might add, I never raised a ruckus inside those hospital walls. But what Christ Hospital did was blindside me that it was involved in the most despicable moral issue of our time. And then it wanted me to walk away from it? Well, I couldn't because I answered to a bigger boss. And I think this is not just the most despicable moral issue of our time, but I think it is the worst atrocity that has been committed against humanity since the beginning of humanity The Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's research arm, says that just in the past 20 years, almost 1 billion babies have been killed worldwide by abortion. 
You know, we're horrified because we're coming up now on 55 million babies who have been killed in the U.S. since 1973, but we're just like a small part of the pie. There's a lot more going on around the world, and that's one-seventh of our world's population. You name for me one other tsunami, holocaust, war, world disaster that has killed one billion people in the span of 20 years, and you just can't. And so when I said earlier, we are here for a time and reason, I know we don't fully understand the time that we're living in right now and the importance of our speaking out. People will come up to me and they'll say to me, Jill, I don't think that I could do what you did. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad that I even stand out at all because I think, do you not worship the same God that I do, the God who parted the Red Sea? Do you not believe the promises that the Bible makes to care for us if we're faithful to him? One of the promises that the Bible makes in Psalm 25.3, and it says at other places in the Psalms, no one who waits for God will ever be put to shame. I banked on that, knowing that it seems like historically Christians, Jesus, they're not vindicated until long after they're dead, but that was okay, you know, I could handle that. But in God's case, uh, I was vindicated pretty quick. August 5, 2002. A couple days before that, I got a call from the White House. And it actually shows up in your caller ID, White House. (laughs) And they said President George Bush was signing the Born Alive Infants Protection Act into law, and would I like to be present at the signing ceremony? And I said, well, of course, and I was honored to attend. So then you may say to yourself, you said, Jill, that not only were these abortions happening then, they're more common now, and that's true. Like I said, the Born Alive Bill is only three sentences long. There's no penalties attached to it. It's just a definitions bill. And so President Bush had a hard time figuring out you know, how to try and enforce it. And then he left office and rest assured that our current president has no interest in enforcing the Born Alive Act. And so you will hear incidences every now and then of babies aborted alive and allowed to die. And they were never prosecuted until just last year. How many have heard of Gosnell? the abortionist in Pennsylvania, yeah, who um, was apprehended and, and several of his staff members and his own wife of killing babies after they'd been born. And so now I hope the floodgates have been opened and will lead to more prosecutions. All that said, I do think that a coroner has been turned on abortion. Polls indicate lately that we are overcoming There's a vast youth pro-life movement that is definitely bigger than the other side. They get abortion in a way we don't. They have siblings who've been killed by abortion. Their best friends have been killed by abortion. One-third of their generation has been killed by abortion. When I speak at schools, you know, and I see the empty chairs, those are kids, future husbands, wives who have been killed by abortion, and they get that in a way that we don't get it, plus giving credit to parents who have brought their kids up well. And the day is coming when we'll outnumber them because, speaking of parents, our side continues to have babies while the other side doesn't. And so it's just a matter of time before we win the war by attrition alone. (laughs) But we must fight on, and each and every one of us is critical to the battle. I received very good advice from Mark Crutcher of Life Dynamics early on. He said to me, Jill, do not rely on the media. Do not rely on legislators. Do not even rely on your church. You just rely on God and go forth with God. And Mark was right. 
If I relied on the mainstream media, I would so often be disappointed. If I relied on legislators, particularly from my state of Illinois, I would most often be disappointed. And I'm sad to say that people in my church have let me down and they will let me down. But God will never disappoint us. God takes one willing servant and makes the most out of that opportunity. The Bible says that his eyes roam to and fro across the world looking for someone who will do what he asked them to do. And the thing is, we are God's voices, hands and feet. What an honor that is. He doesn't have to use us. He could make the rocks cry out, the Bible says, but he does. But the thing is, no one can replace the voice, the hands and the feet that you own in your sphere of influence today. Step back and say, how did we get to this place where 2012, you were at a pro-life event, you have a nurse talking to you about babies being aborted alive at a hospital in Christ and allowed to die. You know, how did we get to this point? Well, it's not too different than it was 2,000 years ago when another innocent man was being put to death. There was that segment of the crowd that wanted him out of the way. He was inconvenient. He was in their way of power and money. Wanted him dead. Then there was that other segment of the crowd that said, what are you talking about? He's an innocent man. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then there was Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate said, I don't really like what you have in mind, but I don't want to interfere with your right to choose. And so Pontius Pilate backed away. That was one man. Today, we are having to deal with millions and millions and millions of Pontius Pilots across the world who poll after poll say they don't really like abortion. They agree that it's killing a human being, but they don't want to interfere. And so it's our job, again, going back to our sphere of influence, where you're at right now, it's our job to help convert these people and help them believe that abortion is unthinkable And you all have been such an encouragement to me today. You know, we've got practically a blizzard going on outside, and this room is full of committed pro-lifers. Such a real inspiration. You know, give yourselves a hand, and thank you very much for asking me to speak today. Thank you. That was registered nurse Jill Stanek telling her personal story of battling administration and politics to preserve the lives of the littlest and most defenseless of our brothers and sisters. In 2007, Newsreel blog named Jill one of the top ten enemies the left fears most. Jill's blog is jillstanek.com. As all of us in the country must realize, we are facing a battle for life in the upcoming presidential election. Our president is the most pro-death president our country has ever had. We all must be active in the public square, active with our prayers, our voices, our treasures, and our actions. Please, Don't let the culture or the mass media dictate the outcome of the election. In her talk, Jill stated that one plus God is a majority. We each have to do our part to preserve the sanctity of life. After this break, we'll hear part of the question and answer session that followed the talks at Faith and Conscious Matter, putting them together in 2012, a conference put on by the Christ the King Pro-Life Action Committee. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. 
After the main talks, time was set aside for workshops and an extended question-and-answer session. Dr. Robert Fastigi and Dr. Monica Miller received written questions from the audience. The questioner was Barbara Grant Yopko. Pepsi, Kraft, and Nestle use a company called Simotech, which uses embryonic stem cells to test artificial flavors. I don't buy from these companies, but if someone else bought it and offered it to me, should I decline? I heard about this, and I think the American Life League is bringing out this matter. It's a case of judging one's cooperation with the evil. Certainly, if it involved the killing of human beings deliberately for this type of research, then we should think about it. There was a similar case brought up about using vaccines that had been developed from cell lines of aborted babies a few years ago. And this went before the Holy See and first Cardinal Screcia from the Pontifical Academy for Life answered it. And he said that one should voice one's opposition to the use of those cell lines, but one could make use of those vaccines if there were no alternatives available. So that was the position here. Now here you have an alternative, but if it could be verified that Pepsi or the Nestle's is cooperating with a company that makes use of embryonic stem cell research, then maybe you should think of using a different product. I I would also say it's really not necessary to drink the Coke. Then refuse it. I don't know of any situations where it's necessary to drink Coke. So it, That's right. It's <laughs> <laughs> considered a luxury item. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, what are the effects of in vitro fertilization on children born as a consequence of this manipulation? And this is directed to Dr. Fastigi. I'm sure there's been some research on this, but it's very difficult to, let's say, quantify the effects because there's so many factors involved. I mean, what type of effects are you looking for? And there are sometimes, you have to do longitudinal studies, and this has only been around for so many years. I would be very skeptical of any kind of study right now, seeing what are the effects, because the children are totally innocent. And in many cases, the parents are innocent or non-culpable because they weren't told that this was immoral, or they might not be Catholic. And many Catholics are not involved. So the child who is conceived in vitro and then brought up, the child has to be shown love and attention and care. And I suppose these children would be loved because they would be wanted and parents were often investing a great deal of money to have them be conceived this way because sometimes a couple who want to have a child and they can't biologically or they haven't been successful will try in vitro fertilization and sometimes they pay tens of thousands of dollars and it doesn't succeed. And oftentimes women are getting married later in life and then their fertility rate goes down. And so when you read about some of these Hollywood types, these movie stars and they're having children at 47, it's often not stated that this is done through in vitro fertilization. But it it involves a great deal of money. It's not always successful. But I don't know if it's been around long enough to do any reliable longitudinal studies. But maybe does someone out here know of any? But that would be my skepticism. One thing I think would be a factor psychologically, I, I can't imagine it wouldn't be, at least for some children, if they were to find out that they were the result of an in vitro fertilization technique and that there were other embryos 
that had been destroyed in the process. You know, and then it becomes kind of Russian roulette. How is it that I was chosen, but the others died in my stead? And I think that could create a level of discomfort and, and guilt even in somebody who would find out that that was the case. Yeah. Uh, unless they're just going to rationalize, well, at that stage we were nothing. We were just blobs. And so it didn't really matter that my unknown uh, brothers and sisters were washed down the drain or still maybe even frozen on ice someplace. I would think so. And that would be a good research project for someone. But there's so many factors in judging the behavior and cause and effect that we have to be careful just from a methodological point of view. We actually have two people who've submitted this question about what should be done with viable existing embryos that resulted from this type of technology. You might be here a long time, so oh, maybe a short... <laughs> actually, I have an answer. Okay. I don't know if there are any more copies of my article on the CPLS table in the other room on embryo adoption. Here's why not. And as Dr. Fastigi read to you from the uh, Vatican, uh, the Instruction Dignitatis Personae, I mean, I think it's at least a fair reading of that document that it takes a negative view. If it doesn't take a definitive, that's debated, but a negative view of embryo adoption. I think that's a fair reading of the document. And it even said there is no solution. This represents a very serious moral quandary. Now, we're dealing with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of embryos that have been on ice in crypto preservation, whatever they call that. And so their futures are very precarious and uncertain. Well, here's my answer. It's a controversial answer, and you can debate with me if you wish. That's fine. But my analysis is this, that, first of all, placing human embryos on ice, especially, let's just assume, an indefinite period of time is an injustice to those human beings. Nobody has the right to place another human being's existence on hold until I figure out what to do with you, whether I even want you. So for years and years, these embryos are on ice. If they ever get dethawed, they might actually be, quote-unquote, 10 years old, when actually they're only, you know, a few days old. But since their condition, the condition of putting them on ice is an injustice to them, I think you could argue that in order to release them, to free them from that condition of injustice, you could take them off ice, take them off the ice. Now, according to the Catholic Church, there's the principle of double effect. The doing of a good act may result in a foreseen but unwanted, ontically evil consequence, namely the death of these embryos. But that's not why you act. It's an indirect result of an otherwise good action that may again, this is quite a debatable and controversial area that we're entering into, be a sad but morally licit answer to what is the future to those embryos. I don't know if you have a comment there. It's a very sad thing, and as I said, one evil leads to these situations which we shouldn't have to face. One suggestion was a Catholic couple who regrets doing this and then they see that their children are there frozen, would they be allowed to baptize them? So I remember discussing this with first my colleague Edward Peters, who's a very good canon lawyer. And of course, canonically, for the baptism to be valid, it has to touch part of the body. 
So even if you were to have a baptism and baptize on the toe, normally it's on the head, but that would still be valid. Could, or baptism of desire. Yeah, then it could be desire. Now, you could say there's an innate desire to be baptized of any human being, but they can't articulate that desire. Then we checked with Father Tad Paholchik, and he said that the water that would be poured over them would kill them instantly. So they would be dying, but in the act of being baptized. Now, that's one thing to do, but how that could be worked out, and there's all kinds of legal issues here, too. Who has possession over these embryos? It's just something that, because they're not considered human beings by those who were promoting this technique, most of them, or the desire to have a child dictates the method used, and a child is supposed to be a gift, not a right, then all these problems exist. So I agree with Dr. Miller that a fair reading of what Dignitas Personae says is a caution, a warning against this, because it's equivalent to a form of surrogate motherhood. And though before this came out, you know, I was weighing both sides and some say, well, the moral object is different. You're trying to rescue a human life in danger rather than... But it's the method that's the issue. It's the method. And you're not allowed to achieve good by a bad method. Now, again, we're not judging the moral culpability of people involved. And some women have, through this Snowflake project, have agreed to receive some of these frozen embryos. And the, the Holy See or the congregation says the intention is praiseworthy, but it presents problems not dissimilar from those noted above. And noted above regarding surrogate motherhood and the legal and moral issues connected with that. Just for my own information, can you tell us what is the typical outcome for a frozen embryo in our country these days? I think the typical outcome is I think they will be stored for a certain period of time. I think there's sort of a window where the time runs out, and if the parents haven't claimed the embryos, then the fertility company is at their discretion to dispose of them. Yeah. And many of them, and this is noted in a part I didn't read, it says that preservation is incompatible with the respect owed to human embryos. It presupposes their production in vitro. It exposes them to serious risk of death or physical harm since a high percentage does not survive the process of freezing and thawing. Now, I'm not sure if we have accurate statistics as how many survive this because I think that if the couple give the company the right to dispose of them, then they write off all legal claims. So I think what Dr. Miller said is correct, but a high percentage of them don't even survive the thawing. So you're dealing often when there's successful in vitro fertilization, that might have been the 80th embryo implanted. And that's what's sad. So you have 79 human beings killed for the one that survives. Okay, this is a good question. The media tends to confuse adult stem cell and embryonic stem cell work. And they try to point the finger at Christians and Catholics as being opposed to science and opposed to stem cell research. What can we do to help correct that? Well, first of all, they're not confused. They're not confused. I think the media knows very well that there is a moral distinction between the church's opposition to embryonic stem cell research, on the other hand, and adult stem cell research. And, I mean, even in Michigan, you know, the campaign to legalize embryonic stem cell research consistently referred to it as simply stem cell research. 
without the word embryonic, see? And then those who say, well, we're against that, then that's where the confusion... Well, okay, so there's confusion. Uh, I think it's a deliberate confusion. Letters to the editor, passing out literature, writing letters to your congressmen and your senators, explaining that there is a moral and, and should be a legal distinction among these things. Speaking out. I don't have the silver bullet. The church has to have a press conference, billboard ads, op-ed pieces in the Detroit News. These are, we're still so far, you know, living in the land of the free and the home of the brave for some, anyway. And you have to use the uh, public organs that are out there to get the message out. Yeah. I think three or four years ago at the University of Michigan, there was a debate between Father Tad Paholchik and the University of Michigan researcher who was pushing for them to take over this research. And I wasn't able to go, but I heard that really um, the University of Michigan researcher really had no arguments. Mm-hmm. And he was just saying, well, we can't stop science. And even though it hasn't proven successful, maybe it will be successful. Then, you know, Father Tad was saying, but if adult stem cell research has proven effective, why don't you invest the money in that? So it's almost like always looking for a moral cover for the evil of abortion. That's why in my talk I brought out, which I find many people never even heard of, or they forget, some of you remember, the fetal tissue research issue. Dr. Nathanson, God rest his soul, addressed that very carefully. And then it was shown to be a failure. And it's almost like, well, then let's not even talk about it. We don't want to show that it was a failure. It was such a horrible charade. And yet uh, the doctors who were promoting this, you know, they had egg on their face and then they just wiped it off and went away. And then we didn't hear about it. But why not promote good research which doesn't involve the destruction of human life? And that has proven to be more effective. A common term you hear from people, even some who claim to be against abortion, will justify it in cases of rape or incest. And how can we address that gently? Go ahead and well, I, I would say talk, there are adults now who learned that they were conceived by means of rape or incest. And they're grateful that they have life. Again, the child conceived is totally innocent. And... Also, a woman who's been raped is really wounded. And now you're going to add another wound by aborting her child. Because that also has deep effects as well. Her emotional state is understandable. She didn't want this to happen. And now the abortion somehow will take care of that. It won't. It'll wound her even more. So that would be the way I would answer it. It, There are some of these speakers out there who've discovered that they were conceived by rape and they're very grateful, and they're very pro-life, as you can imagine. But, you know, the, also the question is we lose the battle if we begin making exceptions. That's right. We lose the battle, and the question is human life is inviolable from the time of conception. We have to be consistent with that. And once you begin allowing accidental matters, you know, in the manner of conception, then you lose the battle because you're sacrificing the principle. I think the issue of rape obviously produces a almost instant emotional response because it's such an obvious injustice to the woman, the rape itself, and then if she conceives a child as a consequence of that violence against her body, why should we force her to carry the child of her assailant, right? 
But here's the thing. When I, you know, when I talk to people about this, I say, okay, as bad as that is, if we start to measure who gets to live or die based upon the circumstances of their conception, well, we could start ruling out a whole lot of people, not just those who are conceived as a consequence of rape. In fact, there may be, you could make a case perhaps, that there are some equally egregious situations. What about the drug addict mother with six children, no job, no husband, no boyfriend, no viable means of support? Shouldn't her baby be aborted too? See, circumstances dictate who gets to live and who gets to die. And that is not a criteria upon which you can build a just society. Moreover, you got to kind of also consider, are there instances in a person's life when another person will be thrust upon you against your will, to whom you will then have moral responsibilities to take care of? Even I'm saying the unborn baby was thrust upon that woman totally against her will. Well, that might happen in a lot of other postnatal situations, right? Where you have to be inconvenienced, make sacrifices, change your life, and maybe just for a short period of time, nine months or a year or a couple of years, how many of you are going to have to take care of elderly parents? Who is going to cost you money, emotional drain, mental burden and all the rest of it thrust upon you against your will you did not fabricate you did not manufacture their dementia their poverty their level of debilitation yet you have a responsibility to care for those who are thrust upon you against your will so i think you got to sort of step back and look at the bigger picture even though the situation of rape is horrible and heinous still we have responsibility to others even when we don't want them Several people submitted similar questions, so I'm going to try to combine them. And excuse me if I don't bring out all the points, but we have heard frequently among Christians, Catholics, and many people who claim to be pro-life that they're personally opposed to abortion, but they don't want to impose their beliefs on others. How can we address that effectively with the people we know? Well, the question is, why are you personally opposed to it? That's the first question. It's like people who say, well, I want to make abortion rare, you know, legal, safe, and rare. Well, why do you want to make it rare? I mean, that already shows you that there's a perception of a moral evil involved. So I would begin by saying, why are you personally opposed? And then, of course, there's many analogies you could use. Well, I'm personally opposed to torture, but it's all right if the government wishes to torture people. I'm personally opposed to arbitrary imprisonment, but it's all right if others want to allow that. I'm personally opposed to slavery, but if that's the will of the people, I'll accept it. So by analogy, it all fumbles, but I think the big question is, why are you personally opposed to it? If you're opposed to it because it is the taking of an innocent human life, you know, to sacrifice that principle that we could therefore now allow the killing of innocent human life because the majority wishes it, or because it somehow made it way legal, you haven't really thought through it that well. The Vatican doctrinal note called that moral incoherency. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, there are also several questions here asking about the language that we might use in talking to people about abortion that would be more 
effective and not inflammatory because we heard stories about people who rebel and become angry and hostile. How, how no, can we? No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> how can we learn the language of love to be more effective? Hmm. Well, I'll just say that there's a difference between an inflammatory reaction and using inflammatory rhetoric. So I think we have to speak the truth in love. And here we have everything on our side. We have the natural law. We have science. We have reason. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have the magisterium of the church. So we have so much on our side, we shouldn't be afraid. But I think that sometimes we do get angry. The anger I feel the most, and I have to learn to control it, is when people who are Catholics who have influence are misleading others. And that's when I have to find I have to restrain myself, you know, or some of these Catholics for Obama and so-called pro-choice Catholic politicians. Those are the ones I get angry at a bit more. Or when you have Catholic universities giving honorary doctorates of law to someone who's supporting a law which is by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and by St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, is no law at all. An unjust law is no law at all. Then you honor someone, I think you know who I'm talking about, at a university named after Our Lady. That gets me angry, but then you have to learn to you know, pray and be calm and say, what's the most effective way? And sometimes zealous words can be effective. We sometimes wonder, well, it didn't have the right effect. But maybe there was nothing we did wrong. But always to try not to be personally abusive to people. Say, you know, you are a murderer. No, why are you supporting taking this innocent human life? So we have to try to find effective means. But I think Monica would be better. She has more experience than I do with the sidewalk counseling. So maybe she could address this. Well, in fact, it's just what I was thinking about. You know, when you're outside of an abortion clinic, there have been, let's put it that way, Times when certain pro-lifers will get out there and they will yell at the women going in. The blood of those babies will be on your hands. God will condemn you to hell if you have that abortion. Words to that effect. Probably not going to persuade that woman to turn around and say, okay, I'll keep my baby. Because they can hear your anger and your hatred, really. You know, these pro-lifers don't hate these women, but there's a certain lack of sophistication sometimes in the way that a pro-lifer will articulate the pro-life message. What do you have to say to that woman? I'm here to help you. I understand your circumstances. Please don't kill your baby. I will befriend you. God loves you. God loves that baby. You'll be a good mom. Give yourself a chance. Very positive, welcoming words to try and get the woman to actually say, oh, maybe that person really, I should stop and talk with them. The context is very important. I mean, there may be times when you should be like Jeremiah and just condemn everybody to hell, but more often than not, it should be the other way. Okay, Dr. Miller, this is addressed to you. What should the bishops do about politicians who advocate for abortion? If I was Pope for five minutes... Just give me five minutes. I know I'm the wrong sex, but I'm sorry. They should be excommunicated. They should be formally excommunicated. The church, and I am a Catholic, I love the church. It's the church that Jesus founded. It's the true faith. 
But the church had a misstep on January 23, 1973, when William Brennan's bishop didn't excommunicate him. William Brennan is one of the seven justices on the United States Supreme Court, a Catholic, who voted with the majority. Already the die was cast where the church was headed when it failed to say something to that man, publicly admonishing him and excommunicating him. You know, excommunication is a very serious thing. It's not something I want to just throw around willy-nilly. See, the problem is it's an intrinsic disconnect because a public official who advocates the killing of the innocent simply cannot receive the body of Christ worthily. You can't advocate the dicing apart of the bodies of the innocent on Friday and then walk into a church on Sunday and consume the body of Christ. First of all, I think that there's a spiritual danger to the politician if they continue the eroding of their own consciences. So it's a question of doing a favor for them, just to speak the truth to them. And then there's the enormous scandal and confusion that that has caused inside and outside of the church, where there's no question that when the bishops do not attend to this problem in the appropriate way, that it creates that confusion, well, it must not be that bad. And there we are, able to live with abortion. I mean, that's my speech. I don't say it's an easy thing. It's not something any bishop should take lightly. But this is such a serious matter, both socially, politically, and religiously, and spiritually, that it requires that kind of serious response. I agree. If it's not a formal excommunication, it could be the implementation of Canon 915 in the Code of Canon Law, which says that those who obstinately persist in manifest grave sin should not present themselves for communion. Now, the thing is, we've done this with those who are divorced and remarried. This is manifest. It's known that they're living with someone who's not their sacramental spouse then they should not present themselves for Holy Communion. Sometimes people then wait until they receive a declaration of nullity or or they wait until the spouse dies and then they'll go back to communion. But here you're dealing with something where you're supporting intrinsic evil. And the first step is the bishop, if the person's prominent or the, the pastor should meet with the person, the politician, and try to persuade them to change their view. That doesn't happen then to communicate like Bishop Tobin did to uh, Representative Kennedy, then you are not to present yourself for Holy Communion. And then to make it known to his pastor. Or the pastor just could do this privately. And then, if he persists, then to make it public. A public admonishment. And a public admonishment. Short of the excommunication itself. At least that, you know. I think there could be canonical grounds for the excommunication, that you're undermining Catholic doctrine, an infallible doctrine. I think you might have to build the case. It wouldn't be the same as the automatic excommunication in the case of a woman or those who procure, successfully procure an abortion. That was the case in Phoenix when a very great and courageous bishop, Bishop Olmsted, excommunicated the sister who supported that abortion. And now that the excommunication has been lifted, let's hope she has repented and so on. But I could tell you this, that my colleague Ed Peters was quite vocal about that pro-abortion Catholic politicians 
If they persist and they've been warned, then that canon should mean that they do not receive. Oh, by the way, there's precedent for this on the issue of uh, racism. Yeah. When Cardinal Cody, when he was the uh, bishop or archbishop of New Orleans, in fact excommunicated to, they were either politicians or community uh, activists on the subject of their racism. So, I don't know if it's good for the goose, it's... That's right. Good for the gander. Have any <laughs> politicians been excommunicated over the issue of abortion? I don't. I think it's been mostly the case they've been warned, warned not to receive admonishments. Yeah. Is, is a denial of receiving communion does that constitute an excommunication? Not or? technically. Because no. wasn't Rudy Giuliani denied? That's true. He was at the mass in New York. Well, with the or Pope. I think he was he. Well, that's a good question. Did he go to communion and then was admonished afterward that he shouldn't have? It was when the Pope was in, uh, Benedict XVI was at Yankee Stadium, I think. Yeah. I think he may be Bishop Burke when he was bishop in uh, Eau Claire, I think. La Crosse, Wisconsin, La Crosse, then Archbishop of St. Louis. Yeah, he um, took a very strong stand he, on he this. He wrote letters to two congressmen in Wisconsin within his diocese that they should not present themselves. And that was after he tried or did have some conversation with them. I'm a little vague on that, but I think I'm close. Well, I mean, my congressman is one of the worst, Dingle, mm. Congressman Dingle. And not, not only that, my wife wrote to him about, you know, the Taking Away of Freedom of Conscience Act, and he wrote back and said, we cannot allow religion or ideologies to dictate access to health care. Dingle is Catholic? <laughs> He's Catholic. So-called Catholic. And he receives communion every week. Mm. As, as I don't know, as often as he goes, it's a scandal. And the, I mean, he's an extremist. Not only does he support legal abortion, but does say, well, it's, I'm against it. He's saying that Catholics do not have a claim in conscience to Catholic hospitals should provide abortions, should provide contraception. And this seems to be his position. I mean, uh, well, enough said. Enough said. And on the same topic, should we petition our bishops to excommunicate our Catholic government officials and representatives? Oh, yes. I think you've done that, haven't you, Mark? Yeah, I have. It, uh, and actually, it, actually, I, I'm going to tell you something. Sitting down face-to-face with a bishop on this matter, it has been helpful. In fact, I believe that if it weren't the laity, pressuring, lobbying, trying to persuade, showing the path to bishops on this point, nothing or, or very little would ever be done. I believe the laity moving the bishops on this issue has gotten us as far as we have gotten. So I, yes, the answer is yes. And always with love and respect and a sense of sophistication, being able to argue your position, but still in all, you got to keep it before them. I, I do believe that. Yeah. The bishops have been very reluctant as a body to take a position on this. And then when there was a synod on the Eucharist in Rome a few years ago, this came up. And because the circumstances are so different in so many different countries, they said that Catholic bishops are to implement Canon 915 in their respective dioceses with prudence and courage. So in other words, they have to combine those two virtues. But sometimes people use the excuse of prudence as a cover for cowardice. <laughs> you know? Well, we've had some very outspoken bishops on the issue of uh, public officials. And things why are getting don't better. they excommunicate? No, no, things are getting better. I think they will continue to get better. You can't take it for granted that it will. This has to be put before the bishops all the time. Yeah. 
And in terms of what the Pope thinks about, he appointed Archbishop Burke, now Cardinal Burke, to be the head of the Apostolic Signatura, the highest canon law court in Rome. So he clearly has confidence in him and his position was well known. And then there was one canon lawyer in North America who was appointed you know, a referendary or a kind of consultant, someone who hears referral cases, and that was Edward Peters. Mm. So it shows where the mind of the Holy See and the Pope is on these matters. But I think many U.S. bishops, they don't, I mean, I don't like conflict, but sometimes you can't avoid it. Sometimes I run into it and people think I'm looking for it. I don't look for it. <laughs> and I don't think Monica does, though some people think she thrives on it. I don't think she does. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, she could speak for herself. <laughs> I don't know, it's just inherent in the the whole problem itself. Yeah. Our current health care law looks like it's going to be using our tax money for abortion, although maybe it already has. Would that be a good thing that we should withhold our tax money in protest? Imagine if all Christians did that. This is a difficult subject because it deals with the moral question of cooperation yeah. with evil. Mm. And... The catechism says there's an obligation to pay taxes. Now, the question is, if there are other means of addressing this other than withholding taxes, then you should use the legal means or the means of persuasion to defund Planned Parenthood, to defund abortion, and so on. But taxpayer money can be used for good things, too, and it is. So the question is, do you have a moral obligation? I think God does move some people to withhold their taxes to make a prophetic statement. And I say, God bless those people. But there's some things where it's not a moral obligation. And this is a case where it would be very remote material cooperation with an evil. And the question is, do you have an alternative? And if you have responsibilities to maintain your household in this country and not paying taxes could get you arrested and so on, then you have to weigh that judgment. So good Catholic morality would justify paying taxes, especially if you're seeking to address the evil by other means. On Putting on the Mind of Christ today, we heard the first talk by registered nurse Jill Stanick from the Faith and Conscience Matter, putting them together in 2012. This day-long ecumenical conference was sponsored by the Christ the King Pro-Life Action Committee. We presented this talk in honor of all of the March for Life stalwarts who will march or shuffle for life in our nation's capital and the 55 million babies who have lost their lives to the horror of abortion. Our talks on Putting on the Mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we've recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks are recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity. License was granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 417. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506, 734-930-4506, or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask that you support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.